0: And remember, enunciate John Andrew.
1: Okay. Did I not last time?
0: In previous ones, it had kind of turned into one word. John Andrew. John Andrew here.
1: That's true. Okay. I'm going to enunciate out my asshole. Okay. (laughs) It's going to smell bad in here, then. (laughs) Hey, everyone. John and Andrew here.
0: Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, a legendary undercover officer. Homeless
1: at 16.
0: Changing lives with his story.
1: This is Optical Course. Let's go. So this was our first guest who reached out to us and asked to be on our show.
0: I know. How did that make you feel, John?
1: Because I think this is gonna be the first of many. I think this is gonna be the new normal. <laughs> I'm surprised we haven't got more emails like this. Can I please be on your show? <laughs> and it makes me think, should we have a strict application process? <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, really vet the masses that are that are just begging. Come on, No, well,
1: it was cool. So, yeah, I got got this email from Mike Chan who who I knew a few years ago and he had seen the article in the paper on the front page, Thank you Couch and Citizen for the <laughs> amazing coverage which Andrew still hasn't seen because no, he lives in Victoria. I just
0: can't get my hands on a Couch and Citizen for some reason.
1: And he refuses to come to Duncan because it's <laughs> beneath him.
0: It's not true. I was in Duncan like 2 weeks ago. Yeah, probably accidentally or, I or on your you. way somewhere else. <laughs>
1: mr uppity that victoria man um uh, but yeah so and then he 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 sent us a few sound bites or not sound bites i guess uh, a little bit of a synopsis of some of his story and asked if, if he could come on and by the end of his email i was already in tears uh, it's just a gripping gripping story and we can't wait for you to hear it
0: yeah we were f- uh very fortunate that he chose to share his story he's uh He's not by any means uh, a, a bragging type or wanting no. to showcase her, his, his own voice. He no. was purely doing it out of the motivation to help shape lives. And we won't talk in detail about those, those facts. We'll let Mike tell the story of his own life, which you're about to hear, but it was very powerful. He also, the, the work that he did undercover for the Vancouver Police Department what a sacrifice and and putting his own life on the line in gripping fearful for other people situations he's an amazing man and and what an interview
1: yeah and speaking of where are you at in breaking bad
0: where am i at in breaking bad uh yeah because we did bring up the show in with mike (laughs) and he's like I yeah I didn't I, it wasn't that interesting because <laughs> because I lived it basically yeah exactly uh so I've just started the fifth and final season of oh, Breaking Bad because I'm I'm that modern I'm not much with the times so I'm yeah. in, in the final season of a show that ended like 10 years ago well, so. and
1: plus I think you said on a previous episode that you know when you when you're feeling like you're spoiling yourself you'll watch one or two episodes a week <laughs> along with a little bit of wine <laughs> <laughs> yeah no <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> don't you binge anything?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I sometimes have more than a little bit of wine, but oh, don't do tell. <laughs> we don't we don't watch a lot of TV well, at our You're missing adult out. Household, but um, Breaking Bad's amazing. Yeah, it is one of the first shows in a while that we've actually kind of gone through. And yeah, beginning of season five, um, Walt is as unlikable as always maybe even more unlikable than always because he's just a yeah he's like the opposite of mike chan he's just so much (laughs) about his himself and self-preservation that is gonna be a sound right there (laughs) walter
1: white is the opposite of michael chan (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah no for sure and have have you survived this long without any spoilers yeah. So you, you you really have no well, well, idea how this the, amazing show is going to conclude.
0: The nice thing is this show has been over for so long that nobody's talking about it anymore. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> so I've heard plenty of spoilers about
1: Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones, but, Thrones uh, but I've never watched it. from me any probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. That yeah. I think I think it was been probably five years since I watched that show. Mm-hmm. So I even kind of forget how it ended. And but then they came out with the prequel, but not really a pre, pre, prequel, but um, was it called uh, Better, Call, Better Saul. Call Saul? Yeah, because Saul yeah. Is, is
0: one of the great characters of Breaking he Bad. It
1: is, yeah, the lawyer in that. But uh, yeah, it's it's a great show, and that was one of the questions we did ask Mike because, as we said, he was an undercover cop, but not just an under, undercover cop. Uh, can I say cop? I just said it. It's another <laughs> undercover cop or police officer on Vancouver's east side, and and Mike talks quite openly about how he was quite amazing at his job and he's still a legend all these years later i mean that was that was probably you know a decade ago that he was there and and they still talk about it.
0: Well, for him to be such a humble guy and yeah. refer to himself <laughs> as a legend, he must have been really good. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: so true. And I just thought of that right now. He's like the one of the more modest guys I know. And he refers to himself as a legend. Yeah. I'm like an egomaniac. And I would never <laughs> refer to myself as a legend in anything. <laughs> one, one question I did have that I wanted to ask Mike, but it felt inappropriate. Um, you can see where the episode goes. Was... Um, he's out there as an undercover cop buying drugs, like buying you know cocaine, heroin, all this kind of stuff, just on the street. What monies is he using, and does he have to file an expense report when he's done? Like, it, like so, I mean, you're looking at me like I'm insane. But from from a business perspective, when he goes out on the call and he's like, all right, I'm headed out to, to do this. Is there like a kitty like a, does he go to like the office manager and be like, okay, get some petty cash. I'm going to need some petty cash for this deal and then just go out. And then he has to come back and do an expense report like, okay, a hundred milligrams of, of coke. Like, uh, you know, it sounds like a crazy question. I want an answer.
0: Yeah. We'll, we'll, what do you think? Uh, maybe we'll write him an email and we can put that in the show notes <laughs> <laughs> because we were looking for some show notes for the episode.
1: Do undercover cops have to fill out expense reports for the drugs they purchase?
0: I would hope there's some sort of system in place.
1: Yeah. And uh, maybe we'll never know. But I'm glad I didn't ask that on the show.
0: It might be one of those need to know things and we don't really need to know.
1: Well, you know what? I do need to know. And so here's the thing, (laughs) listeners. If you happen to know the answer to this, please just email us. Or not not email us because nobody emails, but jump on our Facebook or Instagram and just say, hey, boys, it's true. You do have to do an expense report or that's a lame-ass question yeah (laughs) what are you doing
0: (laughs) the answer is probably like you gotta fill out like an 18c form yeah that's what i was wondering yeah which isn't that interesting
1: an 18c would stand for like 18 carat cocaine did i say carrot cocaine yeah i don't think i've never had drugs
0: <laughs> I think that much is obvious at this point. <laughs> uh, All this, right. Well. Yeah. Modern day Walter White sitting right across right from here,
1: me here, man. And they do not measure drugs in carrots. That's gold. I just thought of that. So cool. All, All right. right. Well, it was it was a great episode, and you might think um, based on probably you you've read the description. You might be thinking, "Boy, is this a hilarious episode?" Based on our introduction, surprisingly, the amount of trauma that Mike has endured and to still be so positive and to to be such an inspiration, uh, this doesn't seem wrong to to have this kind of an intro. To be honest,
0: I agree. He has an amazing story, and he's a a, a brilliant, humble man, and and I he's shaped a lot of the lives of, of kids out there, and yeah, and um, and I'm sure one message that both you and he would say is kids don't have drugs. <laughs>
1: yep. Yep, for sure. But you know what? He's not going to listen to this anyways, because he actually said to us when he left today, he, he like devours every single, single episode. In fact, I don't think he minds me t- saying this. Well, he won't hear it anyways. He, he says that he actually sits down at his computer in the evening and listens to the episode as soon as it comes out. I mean, here's somebody who's really dialed in. Most people listen to it while they're doing something else. This is the thing that he's doing. And that's so cool. But he says he's not going to listen to this episode. He doesn't want to hear himself talk, which yeah. is terrible because it's this is an amazing story.
0: Yeah, so let, let's get some great feedback because I'm sure you're going to be really inspired by this episode because it would be nearly impossible not to. So share with us on social media yes. some responses, and, and we told Mike we're going to give them to him. And yes. Honestly, he's a humble guy yeah. who has struggled with self-esteem issues his whole life, so let's pour on the feedback and and let's lift him up and and listeners tell us how mike has inspired you and we will bring that to him and it'll make a difference just like he's going to make a difference for you by hearing this story
1: absolutely and don't do drugs don't have drugs
0: (laughs) mike chan it's a pleasure to have you on welcome to the podcast I, we know you. um you're one of the first people who's actually reached out to us yes to to be a guest or to to give the opportunity to share your story so thank you for doing so and we're, we're thrilled to have you on
2: well you're very welcome thanks for having me it's um it's a privilege to be here for me i think you guys are doing great work and uh, if i can help inspire others i'm, I'm happy to do so
1: <laughs> you know i was taught as a business owner to always ask how did you hear about us
2: <clears throat> i actually heard about you through the um newspaper article that's the, right uh, couch and paper right i listened to a couple of the um, the episodes i thought oh, geez. well of course john and i knew each other beforehand andrew For sure so i sent john an email just with a very brief synopsis of of some of the obstacles that i faced when i was younger just to see if he'd be interested in, uh, in, in me sharing my story with the hopes of inspiring others and helping other people uh, get through their difficult times indeed we're very <clears throat> thankful
1: to the couch and citizen for running our story and putting us on the front page it's yeah. a little surreal to wake up and see your mug on the front page but <laughs> i think we clean up quite nicely and it didn't say like wanted above
0: it either. <laughs> no, yeah. No. <laughs>
1: yeah and so then and then mike sent me the email pretty much the next day and and in the, in the email you you detailed basically your life in in a few paragraphs and then kind of ended by saying if you think this would be helpful and were honored that you would that you would come on the show and, and share um, some of the turns that your life has taken and and um, some of the things you've learned along the way so thank you so much for coming oh thank you John yeah it means a lot and I know uh, I know you said that your voice decided <laughs> to vacate the premises oh, over actually, the last yeah, 24 yeah, I hours <laughs> I mean well, actually
2: more than that the last weekend I um, <clears throat> came down with this really bad uh, sore throat oh, man and uh, actually um well, yesterday I went for a run at my lunch break and I shouldn't have done that because I came back my voice was even worse. But oh, no. Last night, at uh, just before the stores closed, I was actually thinking, oh man, I'm not be able to do this tomorrow. Because my yeah. voice was worse than it is now. Oh. So I, got, I started Googling uh, uh, natural remedies and then Manuka honey, of course, came up. So I ran out to the store and got uh, the last bottle of manuka that was on the shelf. Did you find so, it helps? Did... Uh, no, not really. I ate half the bottle and by the spoon. You just uh, ate I was, it? I just ate it, yeah. And and no it. peanut butter? No, nothing. This, this morning I ate, ate some more. So <laughs> here I am. And so hopefully my voice uh, Your voice sounds great. Up.
1: And and you know, it's just a slight obstacle. <laughs> so it's fitting, right? <laughs> you got it.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's what we say. Just keep pushing through those obstacles. Yeah. And, and oh, yeah. here you are, and you, you sound good. And, and uh, <clears> we can work a little magic on on the oh, Sounds on the good, microphone. thank you.
1: So <clears throat> I thought a fun place to start, Mike, is is how you met your wife. That was a hilarious story. So yeah. why don't you take us through how you met your wife.
2: Uh, do you know what Weimaraners are? No. So Weimaraners Dogs. are, they're, they're a species, they're a breed of dog, yeah. and they're um, they're a very uh, distinctive looking gray, uh, short-coated breed, initially from Germany. Okay. And uh, when I first got my, my very first Weimaraner, it was back in the late 90s, you know, living in north vancouver and back then Weimaraners were very uncommon they're they're still not very popular but um you see more of them than, than back in those days part of my personality and john knows this about me is that uh everything i do I, there, there's no halfway with me mm-hmm. Either i'm not interested or i'm extreme yeah mm. so i went from having no dogs to having three Weimaraners. oh wow and i was i was really obsessed with these dogs i used to run with them every day like we do like a 10 you know, 15k run i would do um, um obedience training i did agility training i did um um the sniff scenting in the, in the bush so anyways I was, I was really into these dogs and uh, one day when I was working I was um, a police officer with the Vancouver PD for 25 years and uh, I was working on the west side of town. Are you familiar with Kitsilano at all? Yeah. Yeah okay it's Kits Beach? Yeah. Okay for the listeners who don't know Kits Beach or Kitsilano it's on the west side of Vancouver and it's kind of um, it's a trendy sort of a fun youngish uh, place to live. And That's why kind of, Andrew knew it. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure,
1: <laughs> you fit right in, and that's why I did not know it when you first told me. <laughs> so I was driving along Point Gray Road,
2: which is uh, the road basically that um, that uh, that goes uh, adjacent to the to Kisilano Beach and Spanish Banks, <clears throat> and I saw a beautiful whimrander uh, walking with its owner on the side of the road, and of course the dog caught my eye, so I pulled over, and I think at the time um, she told me this later that she thought she, Jenna thought she'd done something wrong, because the police car abruptly pulls her over in front of her. <laughs> So I just looked out the window, I said, hey, can I, can I come see your dog? She said, sure. So I got out of the car and I said hi and introduced myself, said I have three of these dogs and chatted about the dog for a few minutes. Yeah. Then I said, well, have a great day. And she said the same. I got in the car and I drove off. And I went to a call and I was covering another member on a different call. <clears throat> but when I was there, I kept thinking, "Well, that actually the woman, the owner of the dog was actually very nice and so pretty. And. Wow, I should have wished I'd talked to her more. So I waited for the uh, couldn't wait for the call to get over, right? So when finally we were done, I drove back to Kitsilano Beach looking for her. I couldn't find her anywhere. And I drove around for a couple of minutes and was about to give up. A huge field, it was just a massive, massive field. And I saw the dog again way, way off in the distance. So oh, there they are again. But this time I felt like an idiot, right? Because the first time it was just it was fluke. The second time I felt <laughs> right. like I was stalking her, right? Yeah. So. You can't use the same line. No. no. So anyway, <laughs> And then the internal then the internal debate began, I thought, well, she's probably married, mm-hmm. you know, she's definitely got a boyfriend, um, at yeah, the very right. least she's going to phone the department and complain. So <laughs> the trying to pick her up while he's working, Right? which would be bad. So I was about to drive away and I thought, you know what, screw it, if you don't try, you'll, I'll never know. So I pulled over again, and this time she was coming closer and I felt like an idiot. I got out of the car, but she made it easy because she had a big smile on her face when she approached, and I said, listen, I'm really sorry for stalking you, um, I said, it, it, if you're uh-huh. available, would you like to go out sometime? She kind of laughed and she hesitated and that made me feel a bit uneasy. So I didn't want to ask her for a number. I said, listen, if you are, I'll give you my number. So I wrote it down on, a, on a card, gave it to her. And uh, I got back in the car, the police car. We were able to communicate with people through the computer, like like texting almost, right? And the dispatcher at the time was a friend of mine, but we'd actually dated before. But we were, at that point, we were just friends. And I sent her a message. hey, I just met my future wife. She said, yeah, whatever. And I said, okay, well, we'll see. anyway the next day uh, Jen phoned and went for a run with all the dogs and uh, a year later we were married
1: what a story well it
2: just goes to show me sometimes you gotta you gotta as you guys always say in your show you gotta step out of your comfort zone right yeah
1: who knows and in that case that was our tax dollars well spent (laughs) <laughs> you know it exactly. That's, that's awesome. Wow, what a good story. Mm-hmm. And so, as you said, you you, uh, you were a policeman in Vancouver for was it, it twenty five years? Twenty five years. yes. twenty five years. And many of those years were spent um, on the east side. For anyone Downtown new, east side. Yes. Anyone who knows Vancouver, that's that's the heart of the community in a way. Um, and definitely the heart of, of um, some interesting um, things that are going on there. And and you why don't you tell us a little bit about the work? And and I know you served some of the time as an undercover police officer, which I'm sure our interested would be our are uh, interested our guests would be very interested in, in hearing about.
2: Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, when I graduated from the academy, uh, I was kind of introduced to undercover work just because I, I don't look like a like the regular cop, and. Um, I did very very well. They, they put me on the downtown east side. Just I think about a week after graduation, just to see how I would do. And I ended up buying lots and lots of drugs from different people, like very easily. And mm-hmm. so that was kind of my introduction into it. Um, it progressed into to doing more and more to different types of work. My forte was uh, was drugs. I also did undercover work for the Masque Police Department. Masque is now Abbotsford. Uh, that was uh, regarding a, a serial arsonist that was active in the 90s. I. I went to New West PD for several months uh, doing an undercover drug thing for all the uh, that big drug problem around the uh, SkyTrain station. Uh, Victoria PD, uh, she was brought over here by the Chief uh, in the 90s again, late 90s, um, helping with the drug problem here so most of my UC stuff is focused around drugs, uh, buying drugs you know from street level to you know to the kilo level um, which more involved obviously takes more time and
0: where does fear play into that because for someone listening yeah the, there can't be like a more nerve-wracking position to be in than being an undercover yeah. police officer i mean they make movies about it you, you you see it it's the
1: you've seen breaking bad have you mike
2: i, I did but honestly I, and, I, and i tried to get into that john and i couldn't I, no. gave it, I gave it the opportunity but maybe it's because i did that i, yeah. I, I was going to me. ask
1: you is it like breaking bad mike yeah, i didn't watch <laughs> enough enough breaking bad okay. to, to,
2: to tell you that but there are some some coptures I think are very realistic really but um, to answer your question I, yeah. do, um, I mean to be totally honest, I, I I've always felt more comfortable uh, um, being covert in the covert role as a police officer. Some, some members they, they love the presence and the authority that the uniform brings. For me I've never felt um, I never felt that comfortable in the uniform. put me in a room with bad guys buying drugs or buying guns or buying stolen property. I'm totally relaxed. there's no there's not nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, put me in the you know in the, in the limelight with the uniform and dealing with the situation that I, I, I can do it no problem but I mean I prefer definitely the covert roles.
0: Why do you think that might be?
2: I don't know. I mean I, I was very very shy as a uh, as a child and I can talk about that later. Very introverted and uh, very very little self esteem. So I, I probably didn't like a lot of attention. You know I, I never have in my whole life and I think that probably carries through now as an adult. But work, I say. is not for everybody. You have to first of all have the look for it. Um, not not everybody you know, fits the role. Um, You've got to have the mindset for it. You've got to enjoy the type of work. Like i say most people don't and uh, I was just lucky. That was kind of what I fell into and uh, kind of grew from there. It's,
1: it's yeah. interesting because you, you hear some Hollywood actors who talk about growing up um, through trauma and they became an actor because they were able to sort of disappear,
2: you okay. know, and, and, able, yeah.
1: and they were able to, um, they found it easier to play, say, play a different part. Than perhaps to to kind of you know show up in their in their in their skin so to speak. I wondered if perhaps you know you describe being hmm. being shy and how it's a little bit easier to sort of blend in than have to show up and be like I'm Mike Chan. I'm this is who I am. I'm a police. You know what I mean? Yeah, but probably. I, I wonder
2: naturally. Probably for me that that's true, John. I mean, although I did a lot of public speaking as a police officer as yeah. well, part of my um. In my career I worked in recruiting we did a lot of recruiting presentations right I worked in our planning and research office um, at that time I was giving presentations on behalf of the department for, uh, to the mayor and the police board city council so I've done I've done that as well although yes. that's not what I'm comfortable doing right at the end of my career I was a school liaison officer I'll, I'll tell you a bit about that about how I, I use some of the obstacles in my life to help me in that role later on yes. <clears throat> so I've done kind of the full spectrum of okay being covert and very overt right. definitely more comfortable with the, with the covert right um, yeah so I did a lot of surveillance in, in my time, um, handling informants, but the undercover stuff is kind of what I was always known for and I and mean, even now that it's, it's kind of funny but I'm not there anymore but they still talk about me and I'm still a bit of a legend there. Wow. Not only for my good stuff, I had a lot of big
1: screw-ups as well. Um, Any you care to sh- that you're able to share?
2: Uh, well one that was is um, actually in the newspapers, I won't get into details, but uh, it was a big screw-up that I did and uh, it involved a massage parlor and um, <laughs> I, I didn't ask for anything and I didn't pay for anything but something ended up happening and I disclosed it to Crown too late. Crown is um, uh, the prosecutors. Yes. It was a big file that I'd, I'd been working on for for many months and it was conjunction of d- different files and then we'd executed search warrants on a, m- a number of these massage parlors and the reason we targeted these massage parlors was because they were run by uh, Asian organized crime. This was during my, <clears throat> I had an eight years of comment in our gang crime unit and that was during my time there. Hmm. But uh, anyway, something happened in the, in the massage parlor I shouldn't have, and I let it go too far, and I, d- I didn't disclose it when I should have disclosed it. Um, made the media. I got a three-day suspension, and oh, wow. uh, oh yeah, and then they, they use that as an example now to, to teach like up-and-coming uh, undercover members. This is not. This is what you don't do. <laughs> don't do what Mike Chan did like, you know, twenty years ago. You're a legend. <laughs> oh yeah, but, yeah. But, um, so I'm <clears> guessing
1: <throat> there wasn't too many times when your cover was blown.
2: A couple times. I mean, just not not very many. But once, when I was buying um, stolen, or back in the '90s, there were the old cell phones. They were cloned, and they don't do that anymore these days. The the technology is a lot different. But there was a, a place in East Vancouver that, and they're run by gangsters again. And they were selling these stolen, these cloned phones. They were using other people's numbers, and other people's are paying for the bill, right? Mm. And I was in this um, place buying a bunch of phones, and I bought quite a few. Um, we were going to do a search warrant on the place and rest the the owners and put the charges in later but one of the gangsters that came in to buy a phone recognized me and told the guy you know that guy's a cop no way. I said and the guy looked at me and I said what are you talking about um, at that point it was over right and we tried to make more contact after he wasn't interested but at that point we had enough evidence anyway right. to proceed with charges
1: mm-hmm. yeah that's got to be one of the more terrifying moments when you're in in midst of um, you know, undercover and, and your cover's blown. I mean...
2: It, no, it wasn't terrifying as far as my safety goes. It was okay. just it dis- it was disappointing because I knew that, the, uh, that our work up to that point was going to end it there. Right, mm-hmm. okay. we weren't going to be able to proceed. Okay. Were there any, yeah.
0: any moments that you can recall from your time undercover or otherwise in the police department that, that you felt like your safety was in danger or you got home at the end of a, a shift and thought, wow, that was a, a pretty close call?
2: Uh, one comes to mind and I was buying drugs from a, um, it was a business in the downtown east side. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with cigarettes. Um, they buy cigarettes or, or basically like gold. They're like money. Right. At least they were. I think this is probably still the same these days. But um, th- there was a store in the downtown east side that was run at that time by some um, Iranian um, individuals who were involved in organized crime. So the project was probably, probably I'm guessing, six months. Uh, and we started, I started bringing in property that they thought was stolen and um, I was passing it off as being stolen right that progressed to cigarettes and they started taking orders from me for cigarettes and I'd be bringing in boxes of cigarettes that we were getting from the RCMP mm. that this guy thought was stolen property so he was giving me drugs for it so we were working this up until we had like a van full of cigarettes and I can't remember the amount of, of uh, it was cocaine I was buying can't remember how, what the quantity was but it was quite a large quantity and we had uh, for the final transaction
1: yeah, uh, I had
2: a partner at the time. Normally, the, it was just me going in solo. But before this, it was a higher risk, and we had a van full of cigarettes that we couldn't lose. They were worth like I can't remember, say a hundred thousand dollars worth of cigarettes that we had crammed into this van that we needed to get back in exchange for whatever quantity of of, of um, cocaine there was. <clears throat> Probably so, about $100,000
0: for it. I so. can't remember. But
2: it, it, was, it was significant. <laughs> I can't remember, though. But we had, um, yeah, so there was a big operation in place, our ERT, which is our emergency spo- response team. They were going to be our exterior perimeter cover. So if anything went wrong, they were going to come in with, you know, they got the big guns, and they they, they got the all the toys and, and take over. But um, the the transaction kind of got it went sideways initially because the, it didn't go down when it was supposed to go down. They kept stalling. I went in there to do it. They said, no, come back in half an hour. This kept getting longer and longer. We are about to call it when they said, okay, well, the guy's here now, so I showed up with my partner, and he pulled up in his van, and uh, the guy says, I said, where's the drugs? He goes, it's not here. And the plan wasn't supposed to go mobile with these guys. It was supposed to, the transaction was supposed to happen at their store because the containment was on their store, right? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, they didn't want to do it in the store. They said, no, we, well, the only, only way we can do it is if we go to some other address, which we didn't even know where it was. So looking back on it, and it was dangerous to me, it shouldn't happen, it would never happen these days. The, the operation would have been called off. But um, I talked to my partner about it and uh, we decided to go with these guys. So a few of these guys jumped in the van with me and my partner. We had no idea where we were going. We had um, our surveillance team that was very close by to watching and calling it, but we didn't know if they were even going to be in a position to take to pick us up and take us away as fast as, wow. as this was happening. And these guys were all older than us. At the time, I was probably... I'm guessing in my late 30s and <clears throat> these guys are probably in their 40s and 50s and they're all speaking language that we couldn't understand so they get in the car and one and one of the guys is talking to his friend and we're at, we don't know what we said where are we going and we're just hoping that the cover team is following us as we're leaving the, the downtown east side going out towards Burnaby this is probably around midnight so it's, it's dark out right and um, they're talking back and forth and my partner could tell I was really nervous um, I was actually pretty nervous too and the, one of the guys says, shut up we got a gun go, just keep driving Wow. And then we thought oh my god look back there's no headlights following us and i thought okay well these guys are going to probably rip us off or kill us or something all they want to do is to probably get rid of us and get rid take the cigarettes and split right so to make a long story short we ended up in a in a house in burnaby which is a a suburb outside of vancouver about 20 minutes from vancouver and um i talked to my partner about it briefly and we, and we said well we should just take off and we should just just leave because we just who cares? We'll lose cigarettes, get yeah. shit, but uh, at least we'll live, right? Right. Yeah. Anyway, it turns out we pull into this um, the ground floor suite of this apartment building, and I remember there was a guy waiting for us, like on the ground floor level, one of their friends, obviously, and uh, they're, we, they got out of the car. We got out of the car, and we, go, what's happening? Where's the dope? And they go, well, it's inside. I said, well, let's see it. And it was a tough call because at that time um, they, these guys were walking in with their cigarettes. You could, they started lowering them into this and passing them to the guy in the window. And we're looking around. We have no cover behind, around us. We're thinking, "Holy shit! This is our chance just to take off, right? At least we're gonna get out of here alive." Um, <clears throat> but just in that time, just as we're about to take off, I saw a headlight pull out in the lane. Next thing you know, a couple more cars coming in. The headlights start coming from everywhere. It was our ERT guys came in with you know the guns out, screaming mm-hmm. commands. Yeah, as it turns out, there was no money in in the guy's house. Um, uh, it was just like a basically a. Uh, a flop house that they're renting, and they're dealing out of there and stuff. Um, mm. There was no gun either, but the guy had a knife on him in the back. Mm. So who knows what would happen? But they yeah. were probably going to take our cigarettes and try and uh, beat us up. Who knows what they would have done to us? Probably just they would definitely would have robbed us for sure at the very least. Wow, But that's one, one situation that comes to mind. that ended, ended well.
1: Yeah, and you, you said you were a bit nervous during it. And I was wondering, when, when you're undercover, is it is, is it adrenaline you feel? Do you, do you feel like you get in this state? Um, I don't, I don't. Can you explain that to maybe some of our listeners who are wondering what that feels like?
2: For that particular thing, I think the only reason I was really nervous was because there were two of us. I had to worry about my partner as well. <clears throat> if it would only be me it would mean, easy I could have just jumped out of the truck and, and you know when I pulled up at a red light or something I could have just jumped out and right. ran, ran yeah. but you, when you're with a partner and you, and, you right. and yeah I mean the cigarettes aside which we were responsible for is a lot of money with the cigarettes yeah I mean you, you can't do that when you have someone with you right you gotta think of the, your partner so <clears throat> I think looking back on that was my main concern that we had to formulate a plan that we were both on the same page with and that we were both gonna yeah I mean be it's a very out.
0: it's a selfless <clears throat> thought uh, to to have that as your only concern and i'm wondering i mean it, it was a selfless thought but you were very much in danger from an outsider's perspective that sounds like a pretty dangerous situation in, a bit, in the work that i do i don't encounter that sort of thing very often john I, you know you, you I mean, mow some rough lawns but yeah exactly it, it doesn't quite get there no but, yeah but uh what motivated you to day after day put yourself into that situation and, and do the important work that you did
2: Are you talking about policing in general or just <clears throat> the, the undercover, undercover stuff? yeah yep,
0: i i mean both but but such dangerous work in particular
2: i don't know if it was just the need to sort of uh to prove myself i mean ever since i was a kid i, I think i and i'll get into that more later that uh I, I always felt the need to be to be validated and to, you know, to prove myself i don't know if that had something to do with it but uh I enjoy that type of work, as I said, I mean, I, it, policing is different for everybody, right? There's so many facets of police work that everybody's kind of finds their niche, and that's, that's where I actually, I, I love that type of work, so um, that's probably what drove me the most, and I was very, very successful at it, and, and it sort of came easily to me, but you know, along the way, I made a lot of stupid calls, like that was a stupid call, I and mean, both of us, we shouldn't have gone with these guys, we should have said, okay, we can't bring the drugs here, we're going to call it, we're not going to go with you anywhere, that was stupid, right? Yeah. Yeah, so that, that shouldn't happen, but I mean... Motivation is probably just there's always a goal and the goal was to get this thing done. <clears throat> and my whole life I've always been, for me, I've always been goal-driven. Having a goal has helped me to, to, to accomplish what I have in my life. Uh, that's just this for me. And I think I mean, for these all these, a lot of these UC things, a lot of them are, were long-term projects that that, that took several months to, to complete. But there's always a goal at the end. Okay, the goal would be to go, we're going to get a search warrant for this place. We want to do a final buy at the end things like that so I was always like driven to, to accomplish that goal I don't know if that uh, answers yeah, your question
0: absolutely. well you spoke <coughs> about that the validation that you were looking for that was um, at least partially pushed on by events that happened in, in your young life and so perhaps now is a good time to to shift back into that that place because we've heard uh, parts of your story and and there was some in incredible trauma that took place and and so I I wonder if it might be uh, a good good time to shift there and and talk about what happened to you when you were just a, a young boy
2: sure okay um i'd like to preface it by just saying that i don't want to to cast blame on, on anybody like my dad or my, my stepmother at the time and, i mean i think everybody did the best that they could at that time um and i don't want to to betray myself as a victim because i don't think i'm a, I'm a victim it's just a very un- unfortunate set sort of circumstances and i was lucky that, that i came through um, But uh, yeah, I'll I'll share that with you, I'll I'll gladly share that with you. Um, So we, we, I'm initially from Hong Kong, my family immigrated to Canada in 1968, and uh, at the time I was six, Um, I have have two younger siblings right now. Um, At that time, yeah, I had two as well, but I was the oldest. I came to to Canada, I was six, my brother was three, and I think my sister Kathy hadn't been born yet, she was born shortly after we arrived. My father was a vascular surgeon, my mother was a psychiatrist, and when I was 10 years old, we were living in uh, Vancouver in Shaughnessy. And Shaughnessy is, um, nowadays anyway, it's it's a very upscale and uh, expensive part of Vancouver. Um, That's where we were living when I was 10. My mother was working at the Fairmont Medical Building as a psychiatrist. My father was working at the Vancouver General Hospital as a surgeon. And uh, I didn't find this out until later, but um, um, what happened was my mother was murdered by one of her patients. And what happened was she had a patient, and again, I didn't realize this at the time, and I didn't even know this until later, until my, I'll explain how I found out. But um, my mother had a patient who uh, had become infatuated with her, so she stopped treating him and referred him to somebody else. And uh, what happened was one day after work, when she was working late, he um, basically, well, he was talking her ahead of time before that, which I didn't know about, but he, he came to her office after hours, and he had a shot, start shot off shotgun up his jacket, and he went up to her office. And he held her hostage for several hours as well as um, one of the housekeepers and he eventually let the housekeeper go but then he murdered my mom and then he murdered himself after he killed himself afterwards Good. so
1: and how old were you at the time Mike
2: I was 10 uh, my brother was 6 and I believe my sister Kathy was probably around 3 at the time
1: do you, do you remember being told what happened to your mom
2: well, I remember that that night, my dad uh, got a phone call, and he rushed us over to the next door neighbor's house. We didn't know what was happening. I remember the news coming on, and the news being turned off very quickly by our neighbors, you know, while we were watching TV. But when my dad came home, I guess the next day or whenever it was, uh, he told us that that um, he didn't tell us exactly what happened. And I guessed. I remember I said, "Did mom get I said, "Where's mom?" And he said, "Mom's not coming home." And I asked why, and he said he didn't say anything. And I said, "But she had an accident." And he said, "Yeah." so maybe we all started crying we hugged and everything and I just assumed it was a traffic accident and he didn't elaborate so we just, we were all into the, my brothers and my brother and sister and I were under the belief that it was a traffic accident but it wasn't until actually about a week later that uh, we were having dinner at a friend's house and they brought out a newspaper clipping from the front page of the Vancouver Sun mm. which had a picture of my mom on it and just basically the story of what ha- what had happened this is interesting too but um, many years later um, my wife, uh, she used to sell pharmaceuticals. That was her career, and uh, she used to sell Seroquel, which is an antipsychotic drug. So she was calling on a psychiatrist in Vancouver. Uh, this was probably uh, this is actually before we got married. So this is about 11 years ago, <clears throat> and uh, they were chatting. And the, the psychiatrist he was talking to uh, found out she was getting married. So she was "Yeah." And he asked her, "Who's your husband? Who's your fiancé?" And she said, well, "A guy named Mike Chan." So the psychiatrist said, well, actually, I knew a, I knew a psychiatrist um, named Lily Chan. And then Jen put two and two together and said, oh, my God, that, that, that Lily Chan was my um, fiancé's mom. Uh-huh. And the, um, the the psychiatrist, and this is interesting, and this is something that I have no recollection of, he told Jen, he said, well, I remember at the funeral, like Michael and me, I went up to him and said, uh, when I grow up, I want to be a police officer to help people hmm. because of what happened to my mom. Oh, wow. So he remembered this after all these years, right. and he told that Jennifer, and she told that to me. I said, "Well, I don't remember saying that at all, but uh, who knows? Maybe in the back of my mind that uh,
1: hmm.
2: that was that was part of it." But That's powerful. Anyway,
0: do do you recall any other details from from being at the funeral?
2: The, the, only, other, the only other detail I recall is just the coffin being set down, and then we put us, me and my brother and my sister, putting roses on it. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah,
0: yeah. You I, I have a. I lost an, an aunt and uh when I was about five years old and I, I barely remember anything from even my relationship with her, but there was a one small memory from the funeral of of being there with my uncle and him offering tic tacs mm-hmm. and and that's like the only detail and it was a it was a fairly traumatic death and um there was a lot of sadness around the, the funeral but just it's weird how memory works in, in those points of high trauma where almost everything's a blur yet there there's a little bit of surreal imagery that can kind of seep through hmm yeah it's it's an interesting interesting way of the mind
2: there's something i remember about my sister's funeral but i can talk about that a little bit later
1: yeah well you can talk about it right now if you like
2: uh well so that the the first obstacle the main obstacle i had in my life was losing my mother at the age of 10 and um as a result of that a lot of things happened a lot of changes um, Occurred and then that impacted me. Well, my dad, before getting to my sister's story, my dad remarried very quickly after my mother died. I think it was within six months he had a new wife, and um, she was only in her twenties. So you know, she, here she is in her twenties, you three, an instant family with three young kids, right? Um, <clears throat> for For different reasons, and she and I didn't really click. She she got along very well with my brother, and my younger sister Kathy, um, but she and I didn't really didn't click and I think when um yeah it was pretty obvious to me that that I was like my brother was always kind of my dad's favorite they had similar interests and they um, my, my brother actually physically looks looks still a lot like my dad whereas I look a lot like my mother that died so I don't know if that has something to do with it but uh, I was always felt like I was the outcast child anyway as we grew up I was um I was always excluded from family events I grew up not not feeling very good as as, uh, as a child and um, I remember being sent to summer camps um, all the time, every summer, like uh, even though I didn't want to go to summer camps, I didn't want to to partake in those. I was always sent away, and I always felt like it was uh, it was more to just sort of more convenience for them to, to sort of get rid of me than to, for my enjoyment and my fun because these are things I never wanted to do. But anyway, um, when I went to, to, to high school, I went to actually I spent grade eight at Shawanigan Lake School oh, really? on the island. Yeah, and I know Shawnee Lake is actually a, a very uh, it's a very well known school. Yeah. It's, it's a privilege to go there, right? It's 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 a very uh, Everybody wants their kids to grow strong again, but at that time, um, I honestly don't think it was it was to, to, for my education that they sent me away. I, I honestly feel that it was just somewhere just to put them, just get rid of them for a while, so we don't have to deal with them. And I was a problem kid, I think, because well, in my my dad and stepmother's eyes, because when I was uh, shortly after my mom died, I, I got I was very uh, introverted. I got into my I wrote little stories and I wrote books and. uh Mm-hmm. I, I got I became fascinated with animals I spent all my I had a paper route I spent all my money um, buying plants and setting up these elaborate terrariums that I would collect the frogs and lizards and stuff and then I got into um I got into weight training when I was uh, yeah after after grade eight I got I, I read a couple of magazines that I, I spent all my allowance on <clears throat> back then it was the weeder weight sets there were these plastic yeah weights full of sand yeah I remember yeah, those, I, remember those. So <laughs> I bought one of those and I became you know totally Obsessed with, with you know building my muscles and stuff because I think I probably felt like I was uh inadequate and I wanted to build myself up that. Uh, that was my way, I think, looking back at it now, uh, you know, developing some self esteem. Mm-hmm. But I was very um, along with that came a very strict diet, and then you know, I would, I would always uh spend my own money and buy healthy foods and cook it myself, which I think drove my stepmother and my dad crazy because I didn't want to always eat what they were having anyway. Um, back to Shawnee Lake when I was at Shawnee Lake School, that's kind of where my um. My, my obsession with exercise and working out and stuff came because we had a, a phys ed teacher I remember he was a real big strong guy and I remember he had a couple of magazines that I read but um, when I was at Seanigan I don't know if you're, you're familiar with Seanigan but basically it's a boarding school now mm-hmm. you don't have to board there but, but back then it was strictly boarding so uh, as a boarder you're allowed to go home for the holidays like Christmas and Eastern and certain special events but on top of that if you achieve um, 80% or over as a grade point average you're allowed to, uh, to get to have an extra weekend at home so I was on the honor roll once I, I got 82% or something which was pretty tough I was back then uh, it was academically uh, grade 8 was broken up into 8-1 and 8-2 back then <clears throat> you had to write exams before you started the school and depending on how you did an exam you were put in 8-1 or 8-2 I was an eight one. So to get in 8-1 so again the 80s t- I had to work pretty hard to do that and my motivation to do that was to get a weekend to go home right see my family mm-hmm. you know who I missed a lot when I was at the school but I remember when um
1: because they would have been still living in Vancouver. They were the in Vancouver, right? yeah. Yes. yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, right. but I remember the night before I was out on my suitcase packed, suitcase packed, and everything. And whenever you travel to from the school—I don't know if it's the same way, but it's very strict. You had to wear a uniform. You couldn't go anywhere outside the school without the uniform, right. because you're representing the school. Mm-hmm. Right. So I had my uniform all iron and everything I was set out you know, for, for my trip home the next day, because I made this honor roll. Then I got a, a phone call. Someone phoned, either my dad or my stepmother, and the, the we had these things they called um uh, they were grade 12 students that basically were overseeing us. We were grade 8s. So we came and said, hey, you're not going home tomorrow. I said, why not? Well, someone phoned, and I want you going home. Oh. So things like that happened. It made me feel like I wasn't really... Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I felt pretty lousy, right? Um, mm-hmm. I remember my dad and my uh, my stepmother, they bought a vacation home in, in San Diego. <clears throat> they would always go as a family. I was never invited. Little things like that, right? And my, my grandmother would come and stay with me. But... Uh, the second biggest obstacle that I encountered, this is before losing my sister. Uh, Mike, I have a question. Yeah, if it's okay. Of course. Um,
1: now, per- perhaps it's difficult to, to for you to answer this question, but do you feel like your, your dad's relationship with you or treatment of you changed after your mother died?
2: <clears throat> he was very busy, John. I remember um, being a surgeon; he was never home. Um, I don't remember seeing him much even before my mother died. But after my mother died, I think because, um, he was trying to keep her happy. He had the other kids to think about. I was the oldest. I was kind of, I, I think in his eyes, more of a pain in the ass, you know, doing his own thing, working out, making his own food all the time, kind of a different type of kid. Hmm. I think it was easier for him just to, 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 to go along with what she wanted. And if she wanted me to go to camp, I went to camp. She wanted me to go to Shawnee Lake. I went to Shawnee Lake. Okay. Um, when I was, uh, 16, I was actually kicked out of the house and, uh, that was a that was a very uh, unusual experience because the RCMP came to kick me out, oh. and uh, it was nothing I had done. It was, I remember I had a fight with my brother; we were just arguing, and um, so I was 16. He would have been around 13, 12 or 13. My sister probably about nine or 10. <clears throat> anyway, my stepmother recalled the RCMP. And they came to the door and said, you have to leave. You've lost your privilege to live at home.
1: But how is that possible? Like, you're, you're still a minor at Exactly.
2: That. I don't think it would not fly these days, John. No. The ministry yeah. would be involved. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that, that happen then that probably wouldn't happen now. But um, I remember the even the officer told me, you've lost your privilege to live at home. And I said, well, I'm still going to school. And he said, well, you've lost your privilege to go to school. What? So I didn't know any better. I packed up my stuff. I didn't have a lot of stuff. And I remember my sister, Kathy, at the time, who was probably only about six she came downstairs and she was crying and she had a piggy bank she emptied everything out of her piggy bank Hmm. and gave it to me it was a bunch of change and whatever she had right? and she gave it to me right? Hmm. and uh, so from the time that I was 16 on I've lived on my own and uh, I've had support along the way a little bit from my dad but for the most part I've been self-supporting that was the second probably the biggest uh, biggest obstacle
0: so I'm curious about some some more details about what what happened next where did you where did the RCMP take you? Was there any further explanation of that? Where where did you end up?
2: Yeah, so the first place I went was a place that my dad actually found for me, and it was uh, a room he'd rented in the house. The room was about the size of this room here, and there was no bathroom, there was no there was no kitchen, nothing. I had a hot plate, and I shared um, a bathroom upstairs with the people in the, the rest of the house. And I was probably only there for probably a few months, and um, I ended up leaving there. But uh, yeah, I. I was working at McDonald's at the time so at the time I was in grade 11 I actually dropped out of school <clears throat> and uh, I was working at McDonald's and back then I was only making two sixty an hour that was wow. minimum wage. Wow, 2 dollars Yeah, $2.60 yeah, two, yeah, after <laughs> an hour wow. so I went from that place North And to a place that was even cheaper and it was 85 bucks a month for rent it was in Burnaby it was very close to, to my best friend's house and his parents were very very good to me um, they were almost like my surrogate parents but I got a job um, Working at a gym in Vancouver, it's no so longer there. It's called Western Gym, and I got a raise. It was four bucks an hour, mm. and back mm-hmm. then it's kind of this sounds goofy now, but I was like a personal trainer. Now here I was like 17 years old, I had no courses, no schooling, no <laughs> credentials, nothing. Right? Yeah. Didn't need anything back then. It was the kid that knows how to work out. He's got good physique. So yeah. here you hired four bucks an hour. <laughs> so I did mm-hmm. this personal training. place like clean the toilets, like clean the gym, did all that stuff. Right? Mm-hmm. But that's what got me by. And I and I go from I was at that place in Burnaby for a few months, but. Wherever I could find the cheapest rent, Andrew, um, <clears throat> that's, that's where I stayed. Mm. I did have help along the way, too. Like My, my uncle was very, very good to me. He, um, he's actually a, my dad's brother. He was a nephrologist, and he was separated from his wife at the time. But when I was 17, he took me into his apartment in New Westminster, which is a suburb of Vancouver. And I stayed with him for several months until I actually went back to high school and completed my grade 12. So from there, I went to a friend's house in Kitsilano and was paying rent to live in a little room in his basement. But um, it was that little impetus, I think, from my uncle and the help that kind of got me back, you know, back in school and graduated. And um, shortly after graduation, I got a job <clears throat> with the Vancouver School Board as a janitor. And it was a terrible job because it was a very lonely job, and I worked night shift. I uh, uh, left from 11 p.m. To, to 7. But uh, I paid very, very well. I remember getting something like, uh, I think when I left, it was... When I left that job, I actually took a pay cut to become a police officer. Mm, wow. Yeah, but when I was when I was a janitor, I worked there um, full time night shift, but the pay was so good that I was able to put myself through university um, full time, going to school during the day, and I graduated. Um, I graduated with an uh, English degree in, from UBC with no student loans. Wow, wow! But I was lucky to have that job, and it it, it, it was terrible at the time because it was. Most people, when they go to university, it's a fun time, right? You go you to know, the social events, the parties, and right. all that, whatnot, right? But for me, it was, I went to school in the day and I worked at night as a janitor. But I was thankful to have that job because it paid so well, right? And I paid for my tuition, paid for my books, paid for my rent, and uh, yeah, I was able to do it. and
1: now no. this is you know we've skipped ahead a little bit um you were you were sharing a little bit about what happened um oh was it around that time when you got the call about your sister? yeah, so <clears throat> it was
2: about that time i yeah. wasn't uh, I was still working um for the school board, and I was still a janitor, but uh so my sister turned thirteen. I hadn't seen her for a few years before that it's it's sad, looking back on it now and uh, from from being kicked out from sixteen to when um my sister died can only maybe seen her once or twice but <clears throat> when she turned 13 I remember contacting her and saying hey let's, let's get together I haven't seen her for a long time so it was really nice she came down to Vancouver and um, we went for dinner and we went and saw a movie and Kathy was very quiet she didn't she didn't share much with me and, and I, I mean I didn't know her very well because you know we'd been apart for all these years but you know it was great seeing her and she was a very kind and sweet soft-spoken She was the one that tried to give you a piggy bank she did she was left, the one, right? yes exactly so, yeah, yeah. Um, so we had dinner, and uh, I remember giving her a bracelet for her birthday. And we had a nice time, and um, that was the first time I'd seen her, I think probably in a couple of years. And it was, unbeknownst to me at the time, it was the last time that I would ever see her. Um, so a week after that, I got a phone call from Kathy, and she said, Hi, Mike. And I said, She said, I just wanted to say thanks for the dinner last week. And I said, Oh, well, you're welcome. And she said, Well, thanks for the bracelet, too. I said, Yeah, no problem. You're welcome. Everything okay? And she goes, Yeah. And I didn't realize, John, that <clears throat> that was probably her way of saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. Because the next day, my dad phoned me and he said, uh, Mike, uh, your sister's in the hospital. She jumped off Lionsgate Bridge. And Lionsgate Bridge is um, one of the two bridges that connects the North Shore to Vancouver. And she was still alive. She was in the hospital, but she was still alive. So, of course, we all rushed to the hospital, and um, she was in life support, and she died shortly afterwards. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> at that time, um, my dad and my stepmother had separated. They may have even been divorced, I don't remember. But Kathy and my brother... And my half-sister who was who was um, born out of their their um, relationship the, the kids were living with my stepmother mm-hmm. but um, when she, I saw Kathy a week before I, I had no idea that mm-hmm. she was in such despair I didn't um, I didn't know she was in so much pain she didn't share that with me and I, and I wish she had um, and I didn't know that um my, my dad and my stepmother knew that what was going on because I found out later that she um, the police had found her on Lionsgate Bridge before and brought her home and uh, <clears throat> I think she was getting some help, but obviously it wasn't wasn't enough. And she was 13. She was she had just turned 13, so she was just um, yeah, just a, just a kid basically. And John, I didn't I didn't know at the time why. And like I that like I said, I saw her. She was very quiet. You know, I didn't know she was suffering. I didn't know she was in so much pain. But I knew she, that she had kept a diary. So I asked my stepmother if I could borrow the diary and read it. And initially she said no, but then about a year later she got a hold of me and said, "You can you can borrow Kathy's diary." So I read it. And it was so sad, John. I remember, um, yeah, there, there was a, a few a few events that uh, I actually used later on when I was a school liaison officer. But she was essentially bullied by uh, a lot of her friends at school. <clears throat> and she had her best friend. Her name was Julie. And Julie lived directly beside us. And I remember when I was at home, Julie and, and Kathy were inseparable. Either Kathy beat it at their place or Julie beat our place. And constantly, all, all they did was hang out together. But when they hit grade eight, I think the relationship changed. And I think. Uh, for whatever reason, they, they, you know, how kids are, right? Especially high school kids and, and girls, right? They, they can be pretty mean. And uh, Kathy wrote about a lot of things that happened to her at, and where she was picked on and bullied and excluded and and how Julie was kind of at the forefront of it all. It was really sad for me reading it, right? Because I didn't, I had no idea that my sister was going through all this. Mm-hmm. But I, I honestly think that if, if she had come from a strong uh, and loving and supportive family, then she would have been able to endure that. I think she was probably looking for you know, from love from her friends because the the family um, situation um, didn't provide her with that. Right. Yeah. But yeah. Many, many right. years later, at the end of my career, um, I was the at at the school liaison unit, and one of the, my functions there was to give presentations to the students. And so I I created a, an anti-bullying presentation wow. where I shared the story of my sister mm. to the students, and it was a difficult presentation to give and. Um, mm-hmm. I brought in the newspaper articles. Uh, There were several newspaper articles that came out um, when Kathy died and they even covered her funeral. And uh, I talked about our relationship and the the story of the the dinner we had. And then what I read in the diary, and I showed that with the students. And I remember some of the students would be in tears, the same with the teachers, just listening to this presentation. I got pretty choked up myself talking about it. Absolutely. But it was worthwhile because um, several students came forward, and I got lots of emails from parents saying that um, their students had, had gone home, told them about this, and shared things with their parents, gotten help that they needed. Some students came forward to me and thanked me and said, "This, and because of that, they were actually bullying somebody else, and they stopped because they didn't realize realize what they were doing. Um, One mother got a hold of me and said that uh, her daughter um, got the help she needed as a result of that presentation, so I'm just thankful it was was able to turn into something positive, right, and help other people.
0: You speak about the that um, that deep trauma and, and that, that pain that was caused uh, as a result of um, many factors but, but one being a lack of positive influences at home um, and when reflecting on your own journey leaving home at 16 having re- really no contact with your parents uh, or your dad and your stepmom at, at that time and, and having had lost your mother and And being in a very vulnerable position as a 16 year old with no real supports or at least minimal supports how do you think you kept from going down a a more dangerous path or you you seen you have seen from the work that that you did um, young men getting into gangs or or drugs or crime what what do you think it was that kept you from going there?
2: Yeah, I think honestly, um, <clears throat> Andrew, it was my mother's influence. Excuse me. <clears throat> so my mother was very, very strict with me when I was young. And I think I benefited from her, from her influence um, a lot more than my brother and sister did because they were too young. But um, I remember my mom was so strict, and every day... I, I used to hate coming home from school. From, from 6 to 10, I remember I was terrible at math. I still am. But uh, I come home to like pages of arithmetic problems that she had, had written for me to do, and I had to sit there and go and do them all. Mm-hmm. And uh, lists of chores that I had to do, vacuum the house, like clean this, clean that. And I, as a little child, as a child, I, I hated that because I wanted to come home and hang out, watch TV, whatever, mm-hmm. play with my friends, play hockey, but I had to do all of my chores and do the, um, do the arithmetic problems. But I think that, that helped me later on in life because it instilled in me um, self-discipline that I don't think my brother got. Um, And I actually called my brother last night. Uh, He has an interesting story, but asked if I could share some of some of his information. um, And he thought this is great what I'm doing. He he was happy for me to do that. But my brother and I are very, very different. Obviously, the same genes, same parents, but he grew up to be a drug dealer. I grew up to become a cop.
1: So your brother actually was a drug dealer. He was a drug dealer. Yes, but you were in that same world.
2: (laughs) Exactly. He dropped out of high school in in grade nine or grade ten. I mean, I went to complete university. He. A smoker he actually later became a drug addict sadly mm-hmm. me. I'm like a fitness freak right health freak, but yeah. um In my own personal opinion again. I'm not trying to cast blame, but I think it's because um The values that my mother instilled in me before she before she was killed um, I I kept on to those I think and it carried me through life where I him uh, I, he's very much like his Our half sister which came out of the, the relationship with my dad after mom died my brother and my half sister you know who I love but uh, they're very similar in that in that they're yeah I don't want to put anybody down but they're they're more of a hedonistic lifestyle I attribute that to the to just the early influence of my mom they had that for those years and I think that's, that's carried me through my life but <clears throat> I'm one of those like I say I'm mother to the extreme or I'm, I'm not interested I, I, I probably push too hard but um, I mentioned this earlier for me the, the way of, of getting through everything was just ha- having goals and trying to achieve those goals, um, you know, when I was younger, I was only from like 13. I started into this this weight training and fitness, eating well, and I've carried that through my whole life, right? So that has kept me away from drugs and, and alcohol, and you know that that's been a primary focus. And when I got older, I got into I started running when I was a teenager. And then I started doing did my first 10k race. And that that was too easy. So okay, I was, let's do a marathon next. So I did the marathon. Wow. Okay, now you went to the, no, but the goal was the marathon. The first. I didn't achieve that. My goal was to do the mar- my first marathon under three hours. Wow. Failed, three hundred two. Huh. So but that's yeah. still a phenomenal wow. time. Right? But, <laughs> like, but phenomenal. Wow. Well, here's an example of how of how excessive and how much I pushed. So I was disappointed. Went back the next year. Did 251. Wow. I Did two fifty one. Then I said, now I got to break two fifty. So I went that. Finally did two forty eight. Wow. And that was the end. But then, but then after that, I started doing triathlons. That was always something, right? Yeah. Always to prove myself and. Um, even though I hated biking, I did triathlons for a number of years, but I had never done an Ironman. So later on in life, I said, okay, well now I've got to do the Ironman. Do you guys know what an Ironman is? Mm-hmm. You talked, talked about it on your show yeah, before, definitely. right? Yeah, definitely. But for me, no, I had I couldn't do a regular Ironman. I had to do under 12 hours, right? That was my mm-hmm. goal. But I hate biking. That was my other obstacle. I wanted to do an Ironman, but I, didn't, I did despise biking, and I was terrible at biking. So for my very first Ironman... Um, I remember, I didn't have a bicycle. I had ordered one, and uh, there was some delays, so I didn't get the bike until three weeks before the actual Ironman. So I done no biking until three weeks before the race. But I still wanted to go under twelve hours, which is pretty pretty impossible, right? Yeah. Anyway, um, I tried, failed, came in at twelve oh eight. And I remember, on the bike, um, everybody passed me in the bike. So next year I did it again. Did eleven bike rides. So not much more, but eleven bike rides, and. Uh, same thing, everybody passed me on in the, in the bike. You know, as much as I was trying, I just couldn't get up those hills. Everybody's old people, everybody passed me. On the run, though, I redeemed myself. And my marathon time, I remember, was faster than some of the pros. Wow! So I came at 11, 11.58. Wow. So anyway, I did 12 hours, and yeah. I sold my bike the next day. <laughs> so that's, for me, that's, that's kind of how, how I've um, managed to, to survive, just set goals, and like the university thing. I started off at Langara, and you know, got, got the job at the, the school board. Working all those hours at night shift, hey, to go into school, going to work at night, but I, had, I gotta get my degree, gotta get my degree. That was my focus, right? Kept pushing and pushing until I did it. Um, even when I applied for the police department, that was another obstacle because I failed the initial. Um, There's one step with the selection process, it's called the assessment center. They actually don't even have that anymore, they've done away with it, but basically it's an all day uh, exercise where you're evaluating a number of different scenarios. And uh, even then, I was very, like, a, as a child, I was very, very. Uh, quiet and closed and um, because of what happened to me with my family and stuff I think I grew up with uh, well I know I did I grew up with like no self-esteem like when you're 16 and you're rejected by your family it's pretty hard to feel good about yourself right so um, <clears throat> I'm very very shy my friends used to joke that you know I was the shyest guy in Canada probably was so <laughs> but uh, anyway uh, when I applied for the police department um, I initially failed the assessment center and i was deferred for two years they said yeah, you can do it again but you have to wait two years come try it again in the areas i was weak was public speaking um there's group exercise a bunch of things so they gave me a checklist of things that they, here's what you should do to improve yourself over the next two years if you want to try again toastmasters which i know you're a big part of okay. you know, public speaking i forget anyway everything they said i did everything so i went back two years later and did, did very well
1: so so one of the <clears> ways it sounds like that you lifted yourself out of your childhood is by setting these goals, uh, accomplishing these goals, setting bigger goals. Um, but, but I'm guessing along the way, um, perhaps there was some times when it was when it was a bit more difficult. W- what did it look like um, in the times where you didn't quite have the motivation to do the goal setting? Um, did it w- would you get did you did you struggle with depression? Did you did you pull away? Was there any times where you weren't pushing that you were just on the sidelines?
2: you know honestly probably not um, <clears throat> I can't ever say that I've, I've suffered from depression Um although there's been times that I have I've felt depressed and I felt very very sad probably the for me the most profound uh, sadness I've ever had was losing my sister I mean mm. losing my mom was was quite devastating but I was only 10 but it, when I lost my sister I was 20 yeah so to me that was um that's probably the I would say the most the deepest sadness I've ever felt and that was probably the most difficult time in my life but um I, yeah, I can't honestly ever say, like, I don't know why, just the way I'm wired, I think I've always pushed, and, and I know I, I still push unnecessarily, and my wife even tells me this, like, on Sunday I was sick, right, and it was such a beautiful day, I thought, I should, I should go for running, but I'm sick, who goes for running when you're sick, but no, I gotta keep fit, right, so, okay, let's go do 5K, whatever, right, easy run, I end up doing 10K, right, of course, <laughs> and then and then the, the gym at the police station has been closed for since last September, so there's no gym, but there's a... Workout station at my kid's school—a bunch of bars and do pull-ups and dips and everything, right? So I said okay, let's just go there and do a short workout. A short workout. Yeah, I can't no. do that, right? Show no. up. So, yeah, I usually do, say my pull-ups. I usually do sets for twenty, right? I'm showing up and I'm sick. Uh, okay, I'll just do ten. You now I'll stop. Do a ten. <laughs> do I think I stopped? No. No. do like twenty-four or something. Wow. So I, honestly, John, it's, it's and and Andrew, it's. It, it, Having that in me has has gotten me to where I am. I guess I think through all the adversity But it's something that I don't need at this point even Jen my wife says y- y- You can relax, you know, you've made it you've had a career. You've got your family um, You don't need to be this intense and and I don't It's just kind of how, how I am and I, I know that mm-hmm. Intellectually, I realize that but telling my body that and doing it it's not so easy I was gonna say <clears throat> is it
1: maybe your biggest obstacle is is relaxing is probably. being able to sit probably and and maybe not be effective, not accomplish anything, and just sit and take it in.
2: Yeah, it's, I'd say so. That's once something that that I'd love to sit down and watch a movie without having to with my mind going you know a million miles an hour. What else should I do? And you know looking around thinking, okay, I gotta do this now. For sure. Yeah.
0: Was there ever a point in which you felt like you pushed yourself too far and and overdid it or uh, suffered consequences
1: or burnout? You just listened to our episode. I <laughs> did yeah, listen to it. For, I mean, yeah,
2: many times. I mean, even like just the, this cold. I mean, I have pushed myself like physically, like like I always do. But even when I felt it coming on. I still pushed through it and ended you know, up getting more sick. And um, a lot of times, I mean, many times in life, uh, Andrew, maybe <clears throat> even at work. Um, risks I took as an uncover operator that I shouldn't have taken because I, wanted, I was so goal focused I wanted to you know, accomplish the goal yeah I mean a lot of things um, what,
0: what advice would you give someone perhaps like a 25 year old version of yourself looking back now that might have uh, provided a little more leniency or, or support um, to do with that aspect of yourself
2: if anything to have have some balance I mean i have never really I mean, a very balanced person and <clears throat> I'm either extreme or, or yeah I'm not there if that's possible I don't know if I could have accomplished you know what I have if I if I was more balanced though just see my circumstances is just I had to keep pushing I had to keep pushing I remember even through university um, oftentimes I would get like two hours sleep like you know get off night shift and then I have a class at 930 right so I have to go home shower get my books go to school but I'm coming down with shingles because I had lack of sleep. Even the doctor says you can't you can't keep this pace up. You know where you're going to graduate. I and mean, what did you do? I kept going, but and I did graduate. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know any other way of doing it. I mean, um, yeah, I got, I got that big internal that, the police department for that uh, screw up in the um, in the massage parlor. I had other screw ups as undercover operator because I you know pushed too far. Um, <clears throat> yeah, by the way, they um, we were saying that. Uh, I'm a legend there. They actually have they have someone else now that can do undercover work, almost as good as me. But they call him the White Mike Chan. Yeah, <laughs> he's not he's not the real Mike Chan. He's yeah. the White Mike Chan. He's but, pretty good. He's pretty damn good. That's awesome. So, um,
0: so in, in the dream scenario that that balance might be a, a possibility for a younger version of yourself, or even right now. What what might that balance look like?
2: Maybe not so much. To <clears throat> take away some of the drive you don't need to prove yourself anymore you don't need to uh, like you've done it like you, need to re- you can relax it just uh, yeah you don't, you don't need to you don't need to prove yourself to anybody like, you, like, like what you've accomplished is, it says it all sort of thing like you, know, you can just take a break
1: so Mike, on the episode with Heather which I know you've listened to yes um, it was an episode about grief yes and, <clears throat> and one of the things we discovered in that episode is people's grief take different forms and there's no proper way to grieve. I'm wondering if, if part of your drive was 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 an aid to you processing some of this immense grief you dealt with.
2: Could have been, you know, just my way of, of coping with it. Yeah. Yeah, I think you know. They even um, after my mom died, I became very introverted. Started writing all these stories and stuff, and, um, and you know, collecting these animals and setting up these these things. I think that was my way of kind of um, dealing with the pain. Yeah. Um, that actually served me later on in life again well when I was a school liaison officer well I started writing a kids book back in the 90's and I did all the illustrations myself it's about the animals in the rainforest because I I love animals and um, at the time I started writing it because my girlfriend at the time had a couple of niece niece and nephew who I was very close to but that relationship ended up not working out Uh, put the book aside and many years later I picked it up again and I finished it It took me 20 years to finish that book anyways a school liaison officer I read the book to the students in the school and I, used to, and I brought in some of my own animals to show the kids. And I thought it was a great way to relate to kids yeah. uh, um, as a police officer, develop the trust and you know, just the humanity behind the badge. And um, yeah, so they, that was uh, something else that I was able to, to use later on in life again.
0: I hear you you talking about proving yourself and that drive and and it's gotten you to amazing places and and accomplishments whether it's athletically um, or in your career and i i wonder if you're as you're reflecting now on how maybe you can stop pushing yourself uh, the word acceptance comes to mind and I wonder, for someone in your situation, what if the goal, what if the next big goal was was that self acceptance? What, what, how might that work for you?
2: What do you mean by? uh, Yeah, I'm not sure I understand the question.
0: Yes, so. You talk about proving yourself being a a big motivation or that that was a lot of kind of where that fire was coming from was was the need to feel like you had to prove yourself to to yourself or or outwardly sure and uh kind of the other side of the coin of that proving oneself is accepting oneself so i wonder if how how it could work uh if if the goal was that self-acceptance
2: like I think I, I have accepted myself, Andrew. <clears throat> um, like, like I'm aware of, of why I do what I do, <clears throat> and uh, I, I think I know who I am. I mean, having kids now—I've got two two kids at home. And they're uh, ten and eight. That's changed the things for for me a lot as well, right? My focus is, is, has shifted towards them, and it's um, um, my goals are much less. Self- they're not selfish anymore. They're, they're they're for my family, right? Everything I do now is for them. So. Um, that has changed me a lot. I'm still, I'm still not still as relaxed as I as I liked as I wish I could be. I think that's just the way I'm wired, right? It's just hard to, you know, after almost fifty-seven years, to to undo the wiring, right? That, that's gotten you to where to to where I am now. But having a, a young family, that that's helped a lot. Um, I think my role now is different. I mean, I moved to the island to retire, but um, it didn't work out. So now I'm working at the RCMP detachment in town. But uh, again, it's just for the family now. It, if it was on my own. I wouldn't be doing this. Um, so, although I still push myself physically and stuff I had to to keep you know, in shape, um, most of what I do now, or at least I think, and I hope, is it, is not just for me. It's just for the benefit of my family.
0: Yeah. So, just one one quick thing. If, if and it's wonderful that that you found that acceptance. <clears throat> um, what do you think it took for you to get there? For for someone else <clears throat> who hasn't. Quite gathering is still always feeling like they're trying to prove themselves to others and themselves. What do you, what do you think it took?
2: Uh, for me, it took decades, you know, of, of pushing myself, accomplishing goals, and you know, trying to prove myself and you know, develop my self esteem and self worth. Um, what advice do I have? Because it's, it's how do you instill it in somebody that doesn't have it? I think it starts from at a young age. I mean, looking back right now, I, th- I think it's. You know, obviously, you're a product of, of how you're brought up. So, I try and do the best for my kids. I don't want them to feel, grow up, you know, feeling inadequate like I like I felt, or feeling unloved, you know, with low self-esteem. So, how do you fix it? That's tough. I don't know. I think everybody has their own ways of dealing with it. Um, yeah. For me, it was it was setting goals, accomplishing goals. Then you then you build a little bit of self-esteem. Then you set other goals, accomplish those, and you know, until your self-esteem starts coming up. Um, do things for other people trying to help other people Which is why I contacted you about this. So yeah. I think that's That's another way of doing it um,
1: Which which, by the way you, you said earlier on in the conversation You're somebody who, who doesn't like it when the attention is is on them, right? But yeah, and I don't but yet you believe <laughs> so much in in using your story to help people that you're willing to outside your comfort zone to come on the podcast and i just want to i, I want to really lift you up and say that that's that's great that's, oh, that's huge thank, thank you know you, this is not about you you're, you're coming on here and you're, you're revisiting difficult times and you're revisiting you know this the, this idea that you don't like to be in this situation but but you're doing it because of the bigger picture and to help people and and i think that's um that's such a good example for, for all our listeners and for ourselves as well. And I just want to thank you for that.
2: Oh, thank you, John. That, I mean, you guys are doing a great thing.
0: I'm wondering, so, and as, as John mentioned, you, you really took that core of, of helping others at, and made it the, the center of the work that you did and, and the purpose of the work and, and to give people gifts that maybe prevented some of the pain that, that you saw that happened around you in your life and um, I, I want to give a compliment and, and make sure we pay attention to that because it's a it's a really beautiful um, motivation when when we talk about bullying and um, horrible situations that we hear about as someone who's worked in that field and, and been a liaison officer what suggestions might you have or or do you have any any methods that can help reduce those instances of of traumatic bullying
2: recommendations for 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 students for students or parents i mean when you never you never know the history of somebody unless you know that person very very well so what you say to somebody can affect them Um, a lot more deeply <clears throat> and uh more profoundly than than yourself so i think it's important to be sensitive to other people and just uh just to be kind i mean like i say if kathy had, in my opinion had come from a different background a more supportive more loving home environment maybe she would have been tougher and maybe she could have uh, endured this you know the bullying she had that, that she uh, took but she wasn't able to right for whatever reason and i think that uh, And I try and teach my kids the same thing. When you're dealing with people, just try and be kind. Always be kind, right? There's always, you're never going to look bad for that. And you always look yourself, as long as you look yourself in the mirror and go to sleep at night and say, well, at least I was kind of the kind thing, right? Um, That's what I think. That's what I would try and uh, tell somebody. Because you don't know how much you're hurting somebody unless you know that person really,
1: really well. Well, and I think shame is a lot of bull. is a big part of bullying. And the shame people feel when they're bullied. And it's difficult for them to tell people sure um, yeah most I think a lot of people have experienced bullying on some level oh yeah it's
2: very common John I mean and it's not just in, in the schoolyard it's, it's at organizations it's at work adults it's absolutely it's in the police department it's yeah. everywhere right yeah and, and even to for people to stand by when and do nothing and that 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 gives the bullier them the message that what he or she's doing is okay exactly right so yeah. and that's that's not good either right yeah
0: I think it speaks to the importance of a strong community as well, because uh, for your sister, she, she lost that contact with the parents and, and there was, it seems, less of a community around her uh, support. We're losing touch with community in our day and age, and a lot of people are at risk because of that. I find that the more we can strengthen our community, interact with our neighbors, have good groups of people around our youths in particular and and anyone at risk it it can be youths, it can be elderly the more we can do to strengthen that the the more we're going to be healthy as a unit, as a whole and and less people are going to fall into that position of singularity and isolation that that can trigger bullying or a a number of of dangerous um, ills in in our society
1: yeah yeah i agree with that so so mike um obviously you know as you said you and your brother you came from the same household the same family um both endured some some of the same traumatic events you made some choices and went one way and 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 he uh, made some choices and and went another way what what do you think was the main difference besides just your personality why wasn't your brother able to perhaps go on a different path?
2: I mean, he's a very smart, very charismatic, um, very intelligent person. Just didn't make use of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, very talented, very artistic. Uh, he was a very successful drug dealer, never got arrested. Um, oftentimes, when I uh, was doing some of my undercover drug buys, I would go to him and say, hey, here's the situation, give me some tips. So He would say, okay, here's what I think you should do, here's what you shouldn't do. I'd say, okay, thanks. See ya. Really? So I would actually call upon his advi- his expertise to help me in my job uh, at certain times. But I, I honestly believe that he- if he had grown up with the uh with the the values that were placed on me and the self discipline and the hard work ethic that I <clears throat> grew up with, I think he would have been a different person. He was always spoiled as a as a child. Like he got everything he wanted. My dad used to he was the favorite. Good. Um yeah. He and as a result, he didn't have to work for anything. and mm. he, and sadly, to this day, he's never had a, a you know, like a regular job
1: you know one of my one of my big takeaways there's so many takeaways from this episode, Mike, um, but one of the takeaways is just the absolute power of 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 the parental influence in those first ten years. Oh, it's like an absolute absolute game changer those first ten years. It's easy to think, oh, they're just kids, you know, you know, it's oh, yeah. really the teen years where those For are the sure. formative times, but, you know, based on your story and hearing your reflections, those first few years are absolutely crucial to instill the values and the character that will that will guide the kids the rest of their life.
2: I agree, John, and I, and I catch myself all the time when I'm, I'm I'm making mistakes. I'm saying things that are too critical to my kids, and I think back to what my dad and my stepmother used to say to me, how how terrible it made me feel, and right. they were very critical of me right. many many different ways, right? And I... I'm always catching myself, and, and my wife catches me too. Right, and I have to. I go and apologize because I don't want to make the same mistakes. No, no.
0: So, in parenthood now, how how does your own past and seeing your own family's past play out? You've got on one hand yourself who's so goal driven and kind of wants to just go and do it, and I could see there being an, an, a parental instinct to like make sure that everything was perfect for the kids and and you know keeping them safe and and potentially even being overbearing and then seeing from the other parts of your family when when the stepmom perhaps did was too involved and, and gave them everything exactly how they wanted how do you find balance in parenting
2: I, I try not to be controlling to my kids because I, I know I'm a, I I like things a certain way, and John knows this as well about me. But um, <clears throat> yeah, it's 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 tough. I mean, I guess I, I try and take, you know, what I've been through and and, and the pain that I felt and just some of the things that I've faced and I faced, and I and I try and improve upon that. I don't want to I don't want to to make my kids experience that if I don't have to. I, I try. Like I, I know I and, I and I've analyzed myself a lot over the years and I know I have a pretty controlling personality but I try not to control other people like I like things a certain way so I do things a certain way I don't tell other people to do things the way I like them they can do them how they want and I've relaxed a lot like I used to be really OCD with the house everything was immaculate you could not even tell anybody lived there right but now having two kids and a dog it's, oh, <laughs> man, it's it drives me mental right but um, it's a struggle for me Andrew I, I have to always try and um, I guess catch myself and I I just do the best I can for my kids, and I just try and I guess take the experiences I've had and what wisdom I have over the years, and I try and to do the best for my kids, what I think is the best for them. I don't want them to grow up with the insecurities and you know the you know, the, the notion of you always got to prove yourself, you always have to validate yourself. I don't want them to grow up with that. Although it did help me, right, and I think it got me to where I am. Um,
1: you, you yeah. mentioned earlier that that, that you're, you have two children that are ten and eight. Yes. Uh, is it is it your boy that's ten years old? Yes. Or, yeah. It um, uh, made me think. You know, you were ten years old when yes, when, when you exactly. lost your mother, and I, I wonder <clears throat> when when your son turned ten. I, I'm sure that was a time of re- reflection for you.
2: I think about that quite a bit, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. <clears throat> He looks a lot like me too. So I see him, and I, I, right. I do think he's a lot way taller than I was at that age. But uh, facially, we're very similar, and I, I do think about that. I don't always mention that, but Jen, my wife even thinks that sometimes when we discuss it. mm mm-hmm. you know, how hard it would be for him now if, if she was to be, you know, suddenly become out of the picture.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, uh, that's what I was thinking. For someone
0: who can has that immense drive and is so achievement oriented it can sometimes be a challenge to give yourself credit. And when you talk about, when you share your, your life story up to this point with us here and, and th- these amazing things that you've done and the work that you do now and, and have done in, in, over the career with the police, what would you like to give yourself credit for?
1: Hmm.
2: At you know, the, the risk of sounding modest, and I think humility is an important quality that I try and instill in my kids. I mean, I just, I, I'm proud that, I, that I've accomplished what I have, um, <clears throat> with the cards that I was dealt when I was young. Um, like I say, I mean, when I was 16, basically, no self-esteem, nothing. I what I had in my in my black duffel bag, I remember it was members' Adidas bag, was what I owned. Um, to you know, coming to having what I have now, I told John, um, <clears throat> we had coffee, that my very first bed. When I was 16 I didn't have a bed so I slept on the floor but uh, my very first bed was an old mattress that I found my friend Mark and I found it in a dumpster it looked like it was in pretty good shape it had a bunch of stains but it was dry at least so we hauled it out of this dumpster and we carried it down to my apartment and we, I sprayed it down with Lysol spray and the it was soaking wet took about a month to dry but that was my first bed so wow. I'm proud of the fact that I've, I've come from that um, you know self self-supporting since I was 16 put um, myself through university um, working full-time it's not I was not an easy feat um, and just uh, just the career that I had and now know no happy healthy family I'm just thankful honestly it's, it's more it's I, I'm proud that I, I've, I've accomplished that but I'm very thankful for my health I'm thankful for that I was able to get through it and I'm just grateful I don't um like I say again I don't feel like I'm a victim I just feel like here's a circumstance that I was dealt I was fortunate with the, with the support of my friends and you know, in my own character, I was able to to get through some of the obstacles, and you know, and uh, get to where I am now. So, everything that uh, and I know you've talked about this before. Everything that that happens to you, it makes you who you are. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't be who I am now if it wasn't for all that. I don't think I'd have the wife or the kids that I have now. I'd, uh, things would probably be very different if uh, you know those chain of events hadn't happened. <clears throat> for me, I'm just I'm just grateful that uh, I was able to get through those obstacles and. Uh, be here now to share it and i hope that my story can inspire others and if it can and that it, uh, it i'm really happy that i came and you know talked to, to you guys and absolutely you know, it well it's already inspired <laughs> us
1: i know it's going to inspire our listeners um as, as a way of maybe bringing things to a close there's a there's a question i did have about your father sure i, I know you had you had told me when we met <clears> before that the relationship you have with your father now is, is extremely positive oh that's great yeah and and what I was wondering is have you and your father ever talked about the death of your mother and your sister at any length and, and do you feel like you've had some closure with him on some of those um, traumatic moments in your life
2: uh, only once John and my, my dad now is 84 so he's um, he's getting up there in age and uh, he's a very stoic individual he doesn't share his emotions you know easily uh, I remember once, though he did say, and I and I felt it broke my heart for him to say that. He admitted that he said he was a shitty dad, right? Mm. And uh, he was sorry. He said he was sorry for what he did to me, and you know, sorry about what happened to Kathy. And I, I can't even imagine the grief that he must have suffered, right? I mean, losing your wife suddenly to that, and then, and then subsequently losing your daughter to suicide. I mean, so I, um, again, I don't I don't cast blame on anybody, and I and it broke my heart for him to tell me that.
1: Yeah.
2: And you know, I he, the reason we moved here to the uh, to the island after I retired from VPD, was to be close to my dad. So my dad and his wife live in Maple Bay. Okay. So that's why we live very close. We moved here and settled here, so we see him quite a bit. And he he loves his grandkids. Mm. So in spite of everything, you know, all the the history, you know, we have a great relationship now.
0: How would you suggest that uh, other family members, often there can be rifts created in families and uh, around trauma or otherwise, and how would you suggest people go about making amends and, and repairing some past pain
2: hmm. in my opinion the best way to, to, to make amends or to deal with anything is to discuss it I mean as difficult as that may be um, to say nothing is letting things slide I think that I don't think it accomplishes anything I think that that allows things to fester this is just my opinion right so um, may not work for everybody but I think doing nothing is, is gonna accomplish nothing At least talking about it you should have made the effort gonna make some sort of progress that's what I think I mean I'm, I'm thankful that my dad had that conversation with me now I mean I will never forget that hmm um, <clears throat> you know whenever I make a mistake with my kids or I, I realize I said something I shouldn't have or I feel bad about it I, I'll go up and say I'm sorry I, let's let me discuss this so in my opinion and then that's what I would try and do that if you if you do make a mistake or you want to improve things you got to make the effort and it all starts with communication
1: Awesome. Maybe, maybe as a final question, Andrew or uh, Andrew, <laughs> Mike. Um, but I guess ask, I'm, I'm you, just asking Andrew. You can ask me anything, John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm more thinking if he had one. But <laughs> maybe as a final question, I'd like to ask him. Um, you're you, like we said earlier. You've listened to all our episodes. You're mm-hmm. a listener, and, and now now you're a guest. And so you've done the full circuit. One day you'll mm-hmm. host, maybe. <laughs> 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 but anyways, as a listener, as someone who sat and, and listened to all our episodes. Um, I'm wondering, as you're imagining people listening to your episode now, what would you hope that they would take away from it?
2: Hmm. I hope that it, it, it offers some sort of inspiration to people. <clears throat> maybe keep going when when things are hard, um, not to give up, just to keep pushing. You don't have to push as hard as I pushed, but don't give up. I mean, you, you got to keep going. If you don't, um, I don't know what the answer is. If I'd given up, I don't know where i be in today probably not where I am now so hopefully my story can can inspire people just when you're when, it's, when it gets tough and uh, you're sad or things aren't going your way or it's looking very bleak you got to keep going I mean don't give up
1: that's a great note to end on so th- once again Mike thanks so much I know this was outside your comfort zone in, in a lot of ways to come in the studio and, and share your story and and that's what makes it even more courageous and more meaningful so thank you so much for doing that and for honoring us by sharing your story
2: oh you're very welcome thanks for having me guys and like i hey, keep up the great work you're, you're a big inspiration to me and i look forward to uh, listening to your other episodes not myself though <laughs> <laughs> yeah you got it man uh,
1: no way not chance <laughs> no no well, not chance. we'll
0: tell you right now you were great yeah you're anyway, fantastic thanks. spoiler uh, alert i wish i
2: had uh, <clears throat> I wish i had my whole voice but uh, no you
0: anyway. brought a powerful voice yeah, yeah. your voice was here
2: But thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. It's it's been a pleasure, and it's it's been my privilege to to be in your podcast. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Well,
0: that's the episode. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. We appreciate your time and attention. If we can make one request, please subscribe.
1: How do you do that, John? They push subscribe.
0: That's all you got to do.
1: We also got social media, guys. We've got Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Please like us and follow us there. We also got a really fancy website.
0: ObstacleCoursePodcast.com That is the one. It's where you'll find our show notes and lots of other goodies. And if you have somebody who'd be great for the podcast, please let us know. Send us a message on any of those networks and we'll bring them on.
1: Mm-hmm. For sure. We're always looking for good people. Thanks for listening.
0: Keep pushing through those obstacles.